Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to our newest edition of Deep Dive. We haven't done one of these in a while, and this is our first one of 2021. And we brought back Tris Imboden, who you may remember we did we did an episode with him last fall. He's been the drummer for Chicago for many years. Before that, he was with Kenny Loggins, played with Al Jarreau, everybody else. Anyway, Tris came back on to deep dive the Kenny Loggins album, Keep the Fire. This is the one that had This Is It on it, which I think I was seeing some posts today. I believe he won the Grammy for Song of the Year or something like that 40 years ago today, which is the 26th of February. Anyway, um, this album is great, and it's got one of the goofiest album covers of all time, but I love Kenny Loggins, and I love this album in general. And so I was so glad to talk with Tris about it. He, he gives us all the scoop on what it's like working with Kenny. The Kenny, Kenny is a great guy, but also really hard to work for because he expects a lot out of his musicians. And uh, so we hear stories about all of that, how the album came together. Hope you guys enjoy this. Check it out. Thanks for doing this with me. Sure. You betcha. I uh, I love Kenny, and when you said how much you loved working on this album, I thought we've got to we got to do a deep dive. Hear all the stories, yeah. talk about yeah, all the songs. Man. It'll be great. Yeah. Well, good. Did you go surfing today? I didn't, man. I I really thought about it, but the shape wasn't that good. It was, uh, but it certainly had come up. There's a northwest and a south swell, and. Uh, but the shape just was not, it wasn't holding up so well. And it's, it was a beautiful day. I probably should have gone out anyway. But it was pretty crowded too, you know? Yeah. So, what time do you usually get to the ocean? What time? Yeah. Well, uh, since I moved here and I don't live directly on the ocean, on the, just above it like I did in Malibu, um, it's usually not until later in the morning. You know, uh, oh, okay. yeah, uh, but, but it depends on the tide too. If I know it's going to be good, you know, at a certain time, I'll try to time it, you know, for that too. So yeah. Do you have like an app on your phone that tells you what to expect wave wise? Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, online there's surf line, which I am a su- subscriber to, and they're really good at, at swell prediction and tides and all of that. So Cool. You can kind of get a pretty good idea how things are going to be, you know. How long have you been surfing? Did you have you done that your whole life, or is that kind of a later in life thing? Yeah, <laughs> I hate to say, I hesitate to say, but it's been sixty years. Really? I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I started when I was eight, so it's been been that long. Okay. Um, there's been times where I surfed more and uh, and didn't surf as much uh, too, but. But boy, as of the 90s, I, I got roaring back into it. And then I moved to Hawaii, you know, and of course, then, then I really, on the North Shore of Hawaii, because that's when Chicago would have time yeah. off was in the winter. And that's when it gets really good over there on the North Shore. So I, that's right where I lived. And it was just amazing. Oh, no amazing. way. Do you have a favorite spot? Uh, probably Hanalei Bay. Yeah. Yeah, in Kauai. I love it there. Yeah. I've never done. I've always thought. I've always wanted to. I'm. I'm. I'm big. I'm like six eight. Oh and, my uh, God. Yeah. It's just never felt like something that I could do. Even though I we vacation in Hawaii all the time, but I just never thought I could do it. Ah, well, 
might be fun for you to try sometime if you're so inclined. I mean, you know, uh, there's, you know, when I first started surfing, there wasn't such a thing as surf schools or, you know, people, private instruction or anything. And you just kind of had to take your lumps. Uh, now there's a lot of shortcuts, you know, uh, as, as far as surf instruction and that, and, and, uh, you know, people that can, that particularly, you know, in Waikiki and that, you know, like that, there's surf teachers and that, you know, that they, they, they kind of instruct your basics on the shore. I mean, by the time you go out, you know, they push you into some waves and you, you probably stand up, you know, so, so much of it is observation, you know, once you get beyond just the beginning thing, you got to know what to do on certain waves, uh, when a wave looks like it's going to do this or that. And every wave is different, so it's kind of, you know, it's really, uh, it's, uh, you can't really predict, like, exactly what's going to happen. So, anyway, yeah, but it's a, it's the greatest sport I know of. I love it, man. Yeah, so what we do sometimes is we invite back guests that we love to deep dive an album that they worked on, you know, go track by track, whatever stories they can remember, behind the scenes kind of stuff. And um, we talked before, you'd mentioned how much you loved working on Keep the Fire, and I love that album too. And so I thought, well, let's go, let's hear the story of Keep the Fire, you know? So any stories you remember, any little anecdotes? I've got, a, you know, pages of notes here. I'm going to ask you some things, and uh, yeah. that'll be that. Okay, cool. Well, Keep the, Keep the Fire was Kenny's uh, third solo album. Uh, after uh, so there was Celebrate Me Home, and then uh, Night Watch, yeah, which uh, which had the hit whenever I call you friend. Mm -hmm. uh, I do have a Stevie Nicks on, and uh, Night Watch was the first album that we had done as a band, as a complete band with Kenny. Uh, Celebrate Me Home had been. George Hawkins, uh, whom uh, uh, had been working with Loggins and Messina, uh, but Kenny latched on to when he went solo. And then John Clark and Vince Stenham, the two horn players. So by the time we did uh, uh, Nightwatch, uh, uh, we had already been on the road with opening for Fleetwood Mac, and we had really kind of really gelled as a unit. Uh, the whole band, uh, Mike Hamilton, Brian on guitars, Brian Mann on keyboards, George Hawkins on bass, myself on drums, and then John Clark uh, on on reeds and Vince Stenham on reeds as well. I was going to say George Steckel is a name that comes up a lot, and I believe he played on this album, and he was in Honk with you, wasn't he? No, Richard Steckel. Oh, Richard Steckel. Richard Steckel. Richard co-wrote a song that was also used with Kenny uh, that was also used in the movie Caddyshack. Yeah. And it was called, that was on the Keep the Fire album. Mr. Knight. And it was a song called Mr. Knight. Love it. The reason I gave you all that backstory is because by the time we started uh, rehearsals for the Keep the Fire album, uh, you know, we had already you know, met with gratefully international success with, with, uh, whenever I call you friend and, and Kenny had, uh, after the night watch album, 
And Kenny had enlisted Tom Dowd, the late, great Tom Dowd, to produce. Legend. And so, yeah, he he truly was legendary. I mean, he recorded and produced everything from Layla, you know, to uh, to uh, all those great Aretha Franklin records for Atlantis, you know, too. I mean, just about anything you can mention, any genre, he his he had a hand in, like very very important, uh, like landmark albums, you know, and and uh, songs. So it was quite a coup to have to have him producing, and uh, we had the luxury back then of of rehearsing like at length every song. Uh, before we we went into the studio, we rehearsed them alone, and then we rehearsed them with Tom Dowd uh, and his recommendations too. And uh, so we we pretty much had taken aim like like uh, you know songs like um, "Who's Right, Who's Wrong" uh, come to mind, which is a real. Almost, I mean, very complex arrangement. Yeah, Michael Brecker does that incredible sax solo on it. Uh, Michael Jackson sings background yeah. vocals. Yeah, uh, and uh, anyway, it, it goes through a lot of different movements in that, and and really, a song like that, the only way to to accomplish that is to have the the benefit of having you know extensive rehearsals ahead of time. Do you remember now? This was, I believe, recorded at uh, Filmway's studio, and that's not a name I recognized. Is that should I? What else was going on there? Well, actually, I remember the basic tracks being being recorded at the old CBS studios. Now I don't know uh, what they were calling it then, but it was where CBS did all of their recording. Okay, Columbia, you know, studios. Uh, they're in Hollywood, and uh, I don't know. Maybe I guess they would have renamed it Filmways or whatever. By the time we got there, um, there's. Uh, uh, I have to say that that uh, part of what I'm so proud of and love so much about that that album is how George Hawkins, rest his soul, who just passed away uh, a couple two years ago was one of my best friends in life, but also one of the greatest bass players and musicians I've ever had the privilege of working with. And he and I, uh, because of the fact that we were taking such careful aim at every song, we really had had the chance to work out parts that were interesting and uh, as standalone, you know, bass and drum parts, but at the same time supported and didn't detract at all from uh, from the vocals or the melody or the, the rest of the production. And uh, I'm still, to this day, I listen back to that record and go, wow, man, it's yeah. Yeah. pretty darn good, man. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It's so good. Um, okay, this came out. Let me give a little bit of background information. It came out in October of 1979. It reached number 16 on the album chart. There were, I believe, only two singles from the album, and I'll, I want to ask more about that in a minute. Um, one thing that was, when I was researching the album, one thing that I came across was that 
something I hadn't considered before necessarily was that he and Jim Messina were on such a an assembly line of getting albums out reg- regularly every year, new albums. And when he went solo, he did that. He kept up that pace. And I wondered if you noticed from him, this is really kind of Kenny's peak period, this late 70s to, you know, 85, probably. I wondered if you sensed from him a, uh, I don't know, was was there just a lot of momentum? Did he feel like he was on a creative peak and the freedom of not having to answer to a partner? Not that he had ill will toward Jim Messina, but just being free, did that... I don't know. Did he just feel really empowered by that? Did you notice? I think, yeah, I think uh, I do. I, I, I agree. I really think that that was Kenny's peak period. Uh, yeah. And and I think he was inspired both by having the freedom uh, to just do what he wanted, songs he wanted to do, and and uh, without being obliged, uh, not to take anything away from Jim, because Jim brought some of the best out of Kenny, you know, and the alchemy that, 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 uh, happened between, uh, Jim and, and Ken, you know, uh, but I think Kenny was inspired, uh, by, by that freedom. Then also, uh, you know, Jim had also instilled, I think in him because Jim was much more experienced that sort of work ethic, mm, mm-hmm. uh, and it was sort of more commonplace uh, at, at during that era of of uh, let's get an album out every year so we can tour, yeah. you know, promote it, you know, and uh, that was just how how most artists, I believe, were if they had, had met with success, were were conducting themselves, you know, and and so yeah, yeah, I think you're onto it. When we talked before. You had mentioned, um, and I heard this from other people, as I've heard this from other people that I've interviewed too, so if it feels like I'm putting words in your mouth, I don't mean to, I'm sort of paraphrasing a general response that I've gotten, that Kenny at that time could be a little bit of a taskmaster when it came to playing and rehearsing and getting it exactly right. And you talk about how important rehearsals were on all those songs where you was I'm imagining a guy at his creative peak, free from the you know duet part of the collaborator that he had just been with, would might be the biggest taskmaster in the world at that moment. You know. <laughs> well, you know, Jim Messina is has also been known to be that. And there again, I think Kenny Kenny borrowed a lot from his time with with uh, Jim Messina. Yeah. Um, but yes, and yes, and yes, exclamation point. I have to, I got to tell you, I, in all my years with having worked with a myriad of artists that I've worked with early in my career, I've been so blessed. I have never in my, my life met one that is more, um, a stickler for detail than Kenny. <laughs> wow. Particularly in the rhythm section. Well, actually in everything. Everything from vocals on down, man. And to be fair, you know, he is that demanding of himself. Yeah. Too, oh, I believe it. Uh, as he is of all his musicians. Um, actually, it's kind of funny. After my nearly 30 years with Chicago, um, 
I called up Kenny and told him, you know, I, I, I planned to leave the band or I'd left Chicago because I just, uh, I didn't want to be on the road my whole life, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, he said, well, gee, man, would you, would you like to come back and do some dates? I only do about 20 to 25 shows a year now. And I thought, sure. I thought, you know, by this time, he had sounded even different in conversation as uh, from what I'd remembered. So I thought, you know, maybe he's changed. And uh, so I went back and had fun with his new group of guys and all. And but man, I was a fool to think that he had changed that much. I was. It was still. Two-hour-long sound checks, which were oh. were virtually rehearsals, man, rehearsals, man, like crazy, and and like 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 you know, using the steel brush on every corner, coming around the corner, you know, it's like everything's under the microscope. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's sort, yeah. sort of uh, was my my rude awakening. It doesn't leave a lot of time for surfing, does it? You know? Well, no, it doesn't. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you know, now with everything all shut down and that, I'm just grateful that uh, that you know, I'm uh, in position to to not be overly. I sure miss playing with people, though. My God, and uh, and I do miss going on the road a little, but not not so much that I'm 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 uh, clamoring to get back on the in the hamster wheel or anything, you know. <laughs> I believe it. Enjoy the rest of your life. You know, you've earned it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, John. I am curious. We, uh, talking about working with Tom Dowd, as we've mentioned, he's such a legend, and I think he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know, there's a fantastic documentary on Tom Dowd, The Language of Sound. I can't remember what the subtitle is, but look it up. It's so good. Do you know what I'm talking about, this documentary? I do. I haven't seen it. I think I remember hearing about it. I was going to look it up and find it and, and see it. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Sure. I'm wondering if you, to this day, can recall a lesson or some wisdom or some sage advice that you got from Tom Dowd. Uh, hmm. Well. What's the magic potion there? I remember that that... I remember uh, doing rehearsals for the Keep the Fire album. Uh, if he offered a suggestion to uh, to uh, uh, one of the instrumentalists, well, somebody in the band, like in the rhythm section, say, and uh, and then that inspired uh, somebody else to to change their part uh, relative to what what uh, the other guy had been asked to do. Tom said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. That's that, It won't work if you change, too. I want, the, I want the guitar part to change only. Really? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, he really, I mean, he had some, just enormous ears and an incredible sensibility. Uh, okay. I, I know that, that uh, you know, that's, that's one thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, okay. Also, I mean... Technically, he was such a uh, so adept as being like such a great engineer in his own right. I remember uh, he had a an, an engineer um, Steve Gursky uh, that he used regularly, and uh, 
And man, when they were getting drum sounds at, I guess, Filmways Studios, I'd forgotten it was called that at that time, it was CBS Studios, uh, to me. Okay. Uh, they they took great pains in using baffles and moving them just like you know inches away from the drums or closer to 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 uh, uh, maximize the standing waves or minimize them. I mean, they were like 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 uh, rocket scientists and how they got sounds for back then. You know, that's just kind of what exactly what you imagine it must be like to work with Tom Dowd. Rocket scientist is the right word. He's just. Uh, <laughs> He's incredible. I mean, otherwise he wouldn't be as decorated. Um, when I was looking at the, uh, when I was kind of researching the album, before we get into the songs, I'm going to ask you about the first track here in a second, but a name popped out to me, Max Gronenthal, also known as Max Carl. Right. I love Max Carl. He's been on the show. I love him a lot. And um, he, I see him listed as ARP synthesizer programming. Was he there? Was he involved in this? Well, you know, he was always, <laughs> I got to tell you about Max. Okay. Uh, Max was, had been a friend of Kenny's, I mean, dating back to Loggins and Messina. Yeah. Um, I didn't meet him until, you know, I, I was in the Kenny Loggins band. But but uh, I remember hearing the story from George Hawkins that, that uh, you know, George had, had said, "Why don't you hire Max as your keyboard player and and and, and singer?" And, mm -hmm. and Kenny said, "Are you nuts? Do you think I'm going to hire a better singer than me to play <laughs> my band?" Yes. <laughs> oh, it's great. But Max and Kenny had, had maintained this great friendship for many many years, and and. Uh, and actually had co-written songs together yeah. later on. Well, and Max co-wrote Nightwatch on the album before. Yes, yes. On, on Nightwatch, they co-wrote. And yeah. then there's, uh, there's another uh, tune on the High Adventure album, the, the album that, that came after uh, Keep the Fire. Yeah. Um, and uh, called It Must Be My Imagination, that Max both co-wrote and sings backgrounds on mm. on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that he was, I thought it was odd having Max, who, again, as we've established, is such a great singer and songwriter, working on synthesizer programming. Like, why, why was he doing that? Why wasn't he doing, why wasn't he singing on anything? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well... Uh, that's a good question, you know, <laughs> okay. but you know, when you think of, uh, of the fact that, that we were kind of, uh, with the exception of guest appearances by Michael Jackson and the like, yeah. uh, pretty much a self and of course, Michael McDonald, we'll get to that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, we were pretty much self-contained. Yeah, you know, that's Richard, true. You know, I think, yeah, Richard sang on uh, "Who's Right, Who's Wrong." Yeah. He, he, Richard co-wrote that with Kenny, and and of course, uh, Pages or Mister Mister, I guess did. No, I was pretty Mister Mister. It was Pages did a, a version of that song as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Yeah, I was curious how Max fit into the picture. I love him too. Um, okay, track one: Love Has Come of Age.
song is such a great funky rocker and i was reading an article on this album on ultimateclassicrock.com and there was a quote on there i wanted to read uh basically to, to summarize kenny says in this article he didn't feel like they had that he had anything to take people into an encore i wanted people to be able to dance and i didn't feel like i had anything that could really you know get people excited and when i hear this song I first of all the song is fantastic but I see what he means like now I mean celebrate me home is gorgeous but it's it's softer it's pretty you know and now he's got something yeah. that's really going to get the uh the audience moving yeah yeah well, that tune that tune yeah we uh uh I remember we actually opened the show with it uh really uh, going forward after after the release of of the Keep the Fire on the Keep the Fire tour. In fact, if you uh, have ever seen the live um, uh, show that that was released on VHS initially, uh, it, it's called Alive. It was uh, it was two. It was filmed during a daytime show and a nighttime show at Santa Barbara County Bowl. Anyway, uh, uh, they actually switch on that song from from us during the day to the next verse at, during the night back to the daytime back to the night and like that and i'm i'm proud to say if i can like you know toot my own horn so to speak uh the time without using a click track was consistent throughout the whole thing but, that, but that's like you know i have to say there again thank you kenny because he he just, man, he was a taskmaster, and he, yeah. made, he demanded that you know everything be be consistent and be uh, be like you know as close to perfect as humanly possible. So, sure. so anyway, that really uh, helped me work on my time and all of that. You know, I've never seen the VHS of the live, but of course, I've heard the album, and it's fantastic. Oh, thank you, thanks. Sure, of course. Now, there's some really excellent sax work on various songs on here, but on this one in particular, and from what I can see, there's two people listed for sax. There's John Clark and there's Vince Denham. And I don't know really right. much about either one of those guys. Can, what can you tell me? And do you remember who's on here? Okay. Yeah. I know both those guys. We are really a family, you know, all of us that, you know, log and span. John Clark was dated all the way back to the original Loggins of Messina band. And, uh, an amazing multi-readist who even uh, played everything from from English horn and 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 oboe, you know, where you have to carve your own reeds, you know. Oh wow, um, yeah, yeah. If, if you think back to some of those Long uh, uh, um, as Machina albums, you can hear oboe and or yeah. English horn. Yeah, but he played everything from bass clarinet all the way up to you know, piccolo. Uh, wow. and I, and absolutely. And actually on, on, I believe in love from, uh, uh -huh. celebrating the home album. That's one of my favorite yeah. songs. Yeah. Oh man. Well, you know, that, that whole thing that you hear, that sounds like flutes uh -huh. you know, at the beginning. That, that is him playing two recorders simultaneously. No, no counterpunally too. Like, Whoa. you know, they're, they're, yeah, the counterpart <laughs> yes. uh, melodies. 
I've always wondered where that sound came from. That is fantastic. If you do get a chance to see that live video, I'll look it up. You'll see him doing that. Okay. Anyway, he's he's amazing, and and uh, when Kenny uh, um, decided to to stop using horns in his live band, uh, John went on to work with the L- L.A. Philharmonic for many 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 years and did all all kinds of film work and and TV work as well. Uh, and uh, I actually got to play with him with Chicago uh, at the Hollywood Bowl when we when we played with the L.A. Philharmonic together. It was that was great. But but uh, yeah, brilliant multi readist And then Vince Denham uh, has an amazing pedigree too. He um, he worked uh, for years with Vince Guaraldi, You know the great jazz. Yes. Uh, yeah. In fact, he was with Vince. Geraldi's quartet when Vince passed away. Because oh. uh, as you, you know, Vince passed, or might have heard, he passed away at a gig. Oh, I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So, but Vince, Vince Denham was, was, was such a, um, a, a well-respected uh, saxophonist. So actually, when he was working with the Don Ellis Orchestra, you know, the the big band that played all the odd time signature stuff and that. Yeah. Um, John Ellis was so taken with Vince that he composed a song called Invincible. <laughs> really? And, yeah, it was uh, dedicated to Vince Denham, man. No way. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, man. Okay. And, boy, and I mentioned Michael Brecker. When Michael came in to, uh, to do his sax solo on Who's Right, Who's Wrong, there was a little Vince Denham had done a solo, and uh, and anyway, so they were playing it back uh, for for Michael Brecker, and it was a little bit of an echo sound that he heard of the saxophone. They thought they'd muted the the sax Vince's solo, and uh, but but Vince, I, or rather uh, Michael Brecker, heard a little bit of Vince playing, and went, "Who's that?" Oh. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and talk, and Kenny said, "That's Vince Denham." He's a thing. And Michael Brecker said, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great! Good for Vince. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So I mean, you know, he he was very well known, and and uh, okay. after after uh, Kenny stopped using horns, as I said, he went on to to play with Michael McDonald's band for. 20 plus years, I think. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I, um, I love, uh, I, well, the first four songs of this album, just out of the gate, all of them are so funky and fantastic. And track two, Mr. Knight, this is the song that whenever I hear this, I just think who, who invents this, who is sitting at home and thinking, you know, I've got this melody in my head and it goes something like, and they, Spit out Mr. Knight. I read your letter. It said between the lines you're visiting Mexico.
doesn't work that way anyway you know <laughs> nor does mine right <laughs> yeah uh yeah you know i i really think and uh knowing richard you know as i do richard steckel who co-wrote it uh i think kenny was responsible for most of the melody and the chord changes in that okay uh, knowing richard's writing and a brilliant lyricist that he is and knowing his style uh, sort of musically, uh, the, that's not uh, uh, musically the sort of song that Richard would have come up with. So it sounds more like Kenny's, you know, like changes and and melody. But lyrically, I can definitely hear Richard's okay. Richard's boy, uh, influence, you know, and uh, and I think he was more responsible lyrically. Uh, and then he sang backgrounds on that as well. Really? Too. Okay. Yeah, it's so great. And you do this great just rolling drum thing for most of it. I'm not a musician, so I don't know what the right words to describe it are, but that's and then there's this fantastic barroom piano going on on out there as well. I think that's Brian Mann playing that. It is. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if when this song was taking shape, you talk again going back to all the the sweaty rehearsals that you guys did. Did this song evolve from something completely different when it was brought to you? Did it sound, did Kenny want it sounding exactly like this? Or what's the creation of Mr. Knight? Yeah, it evolved as we were doing it, I think. I mean, it ended up sounding like more uh, uh, in the studio than it was at rehearsal. Ah. Um, I, uh, I, it's, it's like a real fast shuffle. Yeah, shuffle, and, uh, that's it. Yeah, and in order, uh, I think that the, yeah, no, the horn players were there at rehearsals, too. The horns were an integral part of that, too. Um, but, but yeah, no, it just uh, just ended up sounding, you know, greater than it did in rehearsals once we got on the wide screen, <laughs> you know? Huh. Yeah. 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 Now, this is not on the Alive album. Was Mr. Knight not a part of the lives um, of your live sets? Or was it sometimes, but not always? Not often. Yeah, okay. not often. Uh, even though it, uh, you know, I'm all right, of course, you know, being a hit from uh, Caddyshack, uh, the movie. 
uh, Mr. and Mr. Knight also having been from that soundtrack. Uh, we we didn't play it live that much. I think in, uh, after I'd already left Kenny and had joined Chicago, I, I believe Kenny started doing it more uh, then. Yeah, you saying that it really took, it sounds like it, it took shape in the studio versus through playing. And if that's the case, maybe it was just too different or, or too difficult or too, I don't know, to recreate that live on stage. Maybe it was better suited toward a studio creation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Totally. A lot of things, a lot of songs are that way. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And sometimes you paint yourself into a corner because, you know, you, you, uh, create this great thing in the studio that's just amazing sounding, but then to reproduce it live is like next to impossible. Yeah. And I don't know that that, that song qualifies for that, but, right. but, uh, but, Many, many records I've been a part of, too. Yeah, no, I believe it. I believe it. And um, from what I was looking at, it looks like Richard Steckel went on to play a lot with Jules Shear. Does that sound right? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, they they formed a band oh. uh, called the Funky Kings, which was the first band that Clive Davis signed to his then new label, Ariston. No way. Um, yeah. And... Uh, so Jules, who then went on to to form Jules and the and the Polar Bears after the Funky Kings sort of flamed out, uh, the Funky Kings also had uh, there was like three major songwriters. Jack Tempson was in Ooh, there. really yeah, who wrote Peaceful Easy Feeling and all yeah. that and all that stuff, you know, from the Eagles, and then went on to write so much with Glenn Frey, you know, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I didn't realize. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, yeah. And do you know anything about how this song got selected to be in uh, Caddyshack? Are you involved in those conversations at all? No, no. That that's usually between uh, you know, the the artist manage and manager and uh, you know, the filmmaker, the producer, whatever. I figured. Yeah. You know, it's something that's I find kind of interesting, and I'll touch on this again when we get to one of the songs later in this, uh, is that I don't know what Kenny Loggins's cool quotient is today, but uh-huh. the people who made Caddyshack at the time and still are still some of the coolest street cred-worthy comedians of all time. And I think it's interesting <laughs> that... Th- they selected Kenny to do the music for their movie. They could have picked anyone. When we look back, we could have, it could have been somebody with a lot more street cred or a lot cooler, quote unquote, but it was Kenny, which may, which tells me he's cooler than people may realize today. Does that make sense? It it sure does. Yeah. And, and, uh, um, Kenny also sort of, uh, was, as a result of the success of that movie and the hipness of it, and the fact that that I'm all right, you know, was so, so well received too, uh, sort of uh, modulated from that to to becoming the the uh, soundtrack or theme song king, you know, of cinema. <laughs> you know, I mean, Footloose, which was number one all over the world. At the same time, and sold nine million albums for real. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, you know, of course, Danger Zone, you know, from Tom And uh, yeah, man, he, uh, 
he really was a go-to guy as a result. But it was actually that that um, that that movie that started it for him. Yeah, you know? you're right. You're right. Um, okay, track three. This is the biggie. This is it. This reached number eleven on the pop charts. Won a Grammy for best pop vocal performance from a male. Co-written, obviously, and featuring Michael McDonald. finished reading uh, a book on Ted Templeman, producer Ted Templeman, written by my friend Greg Reinoff. And uh, Ted, who produced all those Doobie Brothers albums, just went on and on and on about how Michael McDonald is the nicest guy in the music business. And is that your experience? Oh, man. And I could not agree more. Really? I tell you, I've known Michael since since well before I was in uh, the Kenny Loggins band, and well before he was in Steely Dan, even, and, and then the Doobie Brothers. I met Michael in 1974, and it was, uh, we, he was playing with a guy who had the same publishing company as Honk did, and so we met kind of as, as Honk was leaving the, the studio from the publishing company, he was coming in with this this guy, Jamie Browning, who an old friend of mine. And and Michael actually hadn't been in California to my, I think that is how it was for that long. He'd recently uh, moved from St. Louis. 
So we met back then, and he was like a real shy guy, and I was kind of shy, believe it or not, <laughs> back then. And, but, but we kind of made friends, and then we started doing a few gigs together, he playing with Jamie and, and uh, me with Honk. But, man, we all knew back then, as soon as Michael had, we'd heard it sing and play, it was like, oh, boy, is this guy ever destined for greatness, you know? And, uh, and sure enough, man, you know, Next thing you know, we know he's he's playing on stage with Steely Dan and recording with them, and and man, that voice is just like one of the greatest yeah. ever. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the most identifiable voices in pop history. I feel like absolutely, man. But I have to say, I have also I got to say about Michael, he is probably the nicest star I've ever known in my entire life. I mean, uh, not to mention just nicest guy, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, even if he never played or sang a note, he's just one of the nicest people you'll ever, ever know. And, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, he, I, I went on the road with him and subbed for his drummer, uh, after I'd already been, uh, joined Chicago and his drummer, I guess his wife was having a baby or something. And, so, yeah, I had to go on the road for a couple of uh, weeks to fill in. It was just, I was in heaven, man, playing with Michael and his band. We started talking about surfing together back then because he had started surfing in the 90s. And, and uh, just last year, we finally did it. He came to my home here in Cardiff <laughs> by the sea. And I took him surfing. Yeah, I got some pictures, man. It's a Really? Place, yes. <laughs> We had a blast, man. It was so much fun. Man, that is so great. That yeah. is great. Good. Yeah. Yeah, this song, it, it holds up. I um, I was reading an article somewhere about the creation of it, and Kenny was saying that, you know, he and Michael had done so well with What a Fool Believes. They, on the one hand, they felt like they had really found a great dynamic, but on the other, they were scared that they would never be able to match the magic that happened on that one song, but this is it is just as great, you know? And so they did it. They made it happen again. I know, man. I know it. I know. And it won a Grammy too. Uh, you know, of course, why the pool believes won a Grammy, but this is, it did as well. It was for best male vocal. Kenny sang the holy bejesus out of it. Yes, but, uh, Man, uh, I, I've got a, a story about about This Is It. Um, Please. It was the last song we cut, right, uh, for all the Keep the Fire album. And uh, and Kenny, I remember him showing up at the uh, at the session, and Michael Michael played on the, the basic track as well. Uh, he was there for uh, the recording of it. And... Uh, when they walked in the room, <laughs> Kenny said, oh, boy, do we have a good one. <laughs> and, and it was like, for him, he never says that, you know. So uh, and I knew. And then as soon as I heard it, I went, oh, my God, man, that's unbelievable. I was licking my chops. I couldn't wait to, you know, no pun intended, to, <laughs> to, uh, to sink my teeth into that one, you know. And uh, so I... Uh, uh, but I have to say, George Hawkins, poor George, man, had misunderstood. He thought that that the session was for the following day. So oh, we, we were we were sitting there for like about 
three hours, four hours, you know, hanging with Michael McDonald and, you know, just telling stories. And, you know, we, we'd rehearsed the song over and over and we're ready to, to go, but no bass player yet, right? So they, they find, the management finally got a hold of George. He was at his parents' house sitting down to dinner. <laughs> and when he got the call, call in Ventura and we're in Hollywood. So he went, Oh no. And so, you know, race to Hollywood, you know, it's like two and a half hour, two hour or hour and a half, right. Or something. I don't know. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. But now he probably made it in 45 minutes. <laughs> but, uh, but we were already playing the tune and he, George just came in, man, and came up with that base, base oh. part on the spot. Yes. And it's like, God, it's one of the most brilliant bass parts. Yes. I was already playing that that uh, Steve Gadd-like intro because yes. I was you know, so influenced by, by Gadd. Still yes. am. Uh, and, uh, man, he just wrapped his himself around what I was playing and just killed that. I loved the bass track on that. Yes. And, and George, George would never take credit for it. He said, I just watched Michael's left hand. That's all I did. Wow. Uh, anyway, I love that. I love it. And, uh, you know, going back and listening to this and knowing I was going to talk to you, the drummer, I'm listening for drum parts now in these songs. And this and I the this tasty hi-hat that you do through a lot of this song is just so right on. I really love what you what you put out on this track. It's so good. And one thing I want to say I think I've heard stories about the creation of this song. I believe this is it is about, is it Kenny's dad is about to die or is it Michael's dad is about to die? It's not a love song. No, no. Someone dying. It was actually, uh, uh, it was written. The inspiration for the lyric was for Kenny. His father was going in for a procedure. That's it. And I forget what exactly what it was, but his dad was, was really, uh, you know, Kenny had gone to visit him in the hospital uh, before the surgery, and his dad was had sort of resigned himself to like, you know, if I'm you're gonna die, yeah, you know, it's been great or whatever, and was talking like that to Kenny, and it really got Kenny, you know, Kenny's dander up. He he was like, come on, Dad, yeah, don't even talk like that. I mean, you know, and the lyric reflects that. You know, you you're yeah. Yeah, your back's against the wall, and you know this is it, and and uh, you're going no further if that's what you believe, and you know that's that's what it's all about. But yeah, the, the great, great thing about that song, and it's why I'm sure you know they I forget how many different teams in the NBA used it as their theme song, and Leon Spinks did on the way into his ring, into the ring, and on and on. So is that. That lyric is applicable on so many levels, you know, uh, and to so many different situations. And and it always amazes me when when uh, an artist is able to come up with and and that's Michael and Kenny's doing, you know. Yep, totally doing, agree. You know? Yep, totally yeah. agree. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Of all the different applications of playing that song before sporting events, before anything, it it applies to yeah. so many different things doesn't matter that it's written about his dad possibly dying. It's a it's a slogan for just about any moment that you need to capture or uh, capitalize on. You know, this is it. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Track four, Junkanoo Holiday. Yeah. 
Uh, this might be my favorite song in the album. And this, I just have to know, are you the only person playing drums or percussion on this song? Because it is so percussion heavy. It, I imagine, I mean, it's based on, you know, a Bahamas parade and celebration. I'm imagining like a whole street full of people playing, uh, uh, what did I just say, the percussion? Or is it just you? Well, actually, <laughs> I, I did play uh, the, the intro on Timbales and, and Cowbell, but the late, great Milt Holland, who, but the brilliant ethnomusicologist, man, uh, is the percussionist, uh, the additional percussion on that track. And he layered, he, what he was hoping to do was accomplish exactly what you said. Sound like a, you know, a Junkanoo parade in the Caribbean. He really, I mean, he he was a, uh, truly an ethnomusicologist and traveled the world, like, you know, a certain amount, amount of months a year collecting instruments and studying, you know, the, the percussive influences from, from all over, you know, and, and actually the exact parts. In fact, he, he was trying, you know, uh, he would go to India every year towards the end of his life because there is no written notation for tabla playing and for Indian music. It's uh, Indian music. It's all uh, syllables. And he was trying to figure out a way to, to notate it. And he'd always end up getting typhoid or something and come home sick. But that's how dedicated a, an ethnomusicologist he, he is. Well, no, that's the, this is exactly the kind of color that I want. I um, now had you guys toured in the Caribbean, or how did how was Kenny able to kind of capture that culture and that vibe so well? I don't know. Oh, I didn't know if you guys had just come back from a tour and loved it, and this is his like love letter to what you just experienced or something. Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, I wish I, I knew, uh, but I don't. I, I don't think so. I don't think he had. Uh, uh, but I don't know. I, he never mentioned have, you know, having a great love for them. Although it sounds like it. Yeah, you know? it really does. Yeah, but we hadn't toured down there. Yeah, we had not toured down there uh, since I'd been with him. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that I just I love it. I, I I'm a sucker for anything with all kinds of percussion and it sounds exotic or multicultural like that. I love that kind of music, so it's great. I do too. You know, Milt, Milt even played break drum, which is what they use. Yeah, yeah. It's actually just a break drum out of an automobile, too. I mean, it's one of the instruments on on that stack. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Who thinks of these things? That's genius. <laughs> okay, track five, now and then. She sings to me now and then Gentle refrains of summer mornings The first rays of sunlight in dewdrop roses Winds rolling through fall Whistling in the sycamores 
think you're even on here i don't think there are any drums on this song yeah no that's uh, that's one of kenny's uh yeah where it's real rubato and yeah and uh yeah it's with a with a string quartet i believe the accordion on it kind of reminds me of like lady in the tramp or something like that oh right right well brian mann brian mann the key our yeah. keyboard player uh he is actually the son of milton mann and Milton Mann was was uh, Milton our our Milton Mann Studios accordion studio fame, which I guess was were all over the place, and uh, certainly on the West Coast. And I don't know whether it was a national thing or not. But Brian grew up playing the accordion, so I was sort of a natural. <laughs> oh, fantastic! <laughs> you know, okay, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, the song is co-written by Jeff Bouchard, who I didn't know, but I guess he had written a lot of songs with Blue Oyster Cult. Do you know Jeff? I do. Jeff passed away, actually, unfortunately, not uh, a couple of years ago, too. Yeah, he was from the Detroit area. And anytime I'd play there in Detroit, even with uh, Chicago, he would come, you know, and, and, uh, and I'd see him. Yeah. And he was a dear friend of Kenny's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was curious. Um, I will say, and this is because the second half of this album is very ballad heavy. And uh -huh. to me, the, my own personal taste, sometimes Kenny can really name a, a nail a ballad like forever. And sometimes uh -huh. they can get a little sleepy to me. Um, uh -huh. And, uh, and I'm going to, I have a couple the two last two songs on the album are definitely fall in that category for me, but now and then is really beautiful. And, um, um, so I don't really, I don't, I don't mind that song, but you're, yeah, you're not on it anywhere. It's just, it sounds like yeah. he's, uh, you know, he's serenading the lady in the tramp while they're eating pizza, uh, spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, right. Sharing a meatball. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Um, okay. The next one is, and I think if we were on vinyl, we would be switching the album over for this one. Who's right. Who's wrong. You mentioned that co-written by Richard Page and of Mr. Mr. and featuring Michael Jackson. I've grown tired of fighting Whether you're right or wrong Whether I'm weak or strong In your eyes This is a lonely feeling Watching you turn away have to be this way on and on tonight you made a point of being 
Tell me about, were you in the room while Michael Jackson was there recording? Well, actually, yeah, I got to hang with Michael Jackson. No way. uh, He, yeah, uh, before um, he did his vocal, uh, you know, he he was kind of hanging around and he was checking out my drum set. Uh, They were still set up because we weren't done tracking yet. We did some vocals as we were going along. And... uh, and he really loved the drums, you know. He's uh, and and actually, I asked him if he could play my drums. I said, "Are you kidding? Of course, I'd be honored." So he sat down, and you know, he didn't really play play him much. He sort of hit him, and his what it sounded like. But uh, so I don't know whether he he played drums or not. But he just was really interested in the drums, and and he was the nicest guy. He was just, he was so nice and and pleasant, and we had a real nice conversation. Um, that was right right before or right after I guess living off the wall had come. Yeah, and he he was just at the point of ascending. He had not yet become you know. Michael Jackson, that you know, the king of pop and all genres, you know, that that he became. Uh, so, uh, but I, I was, I always loved his voice, and I, I loved that album. Off the Wall is a masterpiece. I like that one way better than Thriller. Yeah, I do too. I do too, man. Yeah. So, uh, so it was great. I did get to hang with him, and and uh, a lot of people don't realize when they, you know, uh, tell 
until they're told that Michael Jackson's on the Keep the Fire album, you know, because he is like tucked in the background vocals there. And uh, but if you listen close, you can certainly hear him on the choruses. There he is. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to read on that same article that I read on Ultimate Classic Rock magazine. There's a really funny quote on here. Um, Kenny says to Michael, well, first he says he was a total sweetheart and was willing to go in any direction. I remember at one point I said, put more of your thing on it. It feels a little too stiff. And Michael said, you mean you want it stinky? Yeah. <laughs> Kenny says, yeah, I want it stinky. So he put more juice on it. I just think that's funny. I remember the moment. You do? No way. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I, th I remember it was Tom Dowd saying, hey, Michael, it was Tom that actually asked him. And he said, so, so it's just a matter of semantics. But I, I think what he said was, oh, so you want a more smelly? <laughs> <laughs> smelly. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That is great. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I saw that uh, This Is It, or uh, is that what it's called? Uh, the documentary of, that came out after he died of the... Um, right, it was, yeah. I, I can't think if I if it's really called This Is It or I have that on my brain because we just talked about that song, but... No, I thought, actually, I thought it was kind of disrespectful uh, to the song <laughs> that he named. The tour was going to be called that, too, I thought, you know, Uh the tour that he was rehearsing for when he passed. So, yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. when I remember seeing that movie in the, th in the theater and there's a moment where he's, um, he's just kind of standing there after a song sort of posing and Kenny Ortega, the director says something like, what are you doing? And he says, I'm sizzling. I'm si It's, this is me sizzling. And I just thought there is a star who is in complete control of his aura. You know, he knows that if he stands there and poses for another 30 seconds, He's sizzling the room, and I just love that he came up with that word. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> That's a good one, man. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sizzling. <laughs> I want to read one other thing that Kenny said in that same article about this song, and he said, you know, had I really thought it through, I should have probably recorded something up-tempo. He says, I kick myself and think that that was kind of a waste of Michael's talent, and I have to admit, I, I kind of agree. I hadn't thought of it. But if you have Michael Jack, after I read that quote, I thought, that's so true. If you have Michael Jackson singing on your song, why would you yeah. just have him sing the chorus on this one track? You know what right, I mean? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's true. And those two at that time with Kenny's voice, they could have come up with something really magical, I think. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. Well, Kenny is so steeped in R and B, you know. Too, I mean, I, I mean, in so many different genres, you know. Uh, but but he loves R and B, and and uh, you know, as a result, uh, you know, we've had crossover R and B hits. This is it, being one of them, uh, and then also, uh, um, Heart to Heart was an R and B hit. Oh, off of the High Adventure album, yeah, and and. Uh, you know, Kenny does that that great falsetto thing, man. It then descends into full voice. It's kind of inspired by uh, uh, the, the Isleys or something. Oh, is that it? Yeah, yeah. He's amazing. I'm going to touch on that in another couple of songs. Um, let's see, Richard Page. Now he's one of those guys. I think everyone knows he was sort of one of those popular LA session guys, like a Lukather or a Picaro or a Graydon or whatever. And uh, he eventually 
creates Mr. Mister and rises to superstardom. But before that, he was a guy, a reliable session guy, right? But before that, he was a part of a band that all musicians in the know, particularly on the West Coast anyway, uh, were aware of, but they didn't meet with, with much uh, commercial success. Uh, it was a band that Bobby Columbi, uh, the, the great drummer from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, went on to become the, like uh, the, the, the main guy at CBS Records for many years, uh, actually turned us on to. It was a band called Pages. And, uh, and it, Steve George, who went on to work with Kenny as well for many years, was a keyboard player and co-writer, of, along with Richard Page, of, of nearly all the material from that band. They did two or three albums, I believe. And man, to this day, they, those, those songs, boy, do they hold up. And they, they had actually a, what we call a turntable hit. You probably know what that is. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, they had a song called I Do Believe in You off their second album, I think it was. And man, killer song, got airplay all over the country. We heard it while we were on the road. Thought, okay, they're on their way. But it, it just nothing more happened to that uh, than that. Uh, it was the one that got away. So anyway, um, yeah, then uh, everybody was aware of what a great singer Richard was. I mean, everybody in town, you know, because everybody loved Pages. And uh, and so anyway, he and Steve George, uh, his partner, is also a great singer, you know, started being asked to do background session work, you know, singing backgrounds and vocal arranging. And that's how he kind of became the session singer. He became before they put Mr. Mister together. I had the chronology wrong. I thought it was session guy, then pages, then Mr. Mister. But it sounds like it was pages and then session guy. Either way, he's just yeah. hyper talented. Absolutely. This guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, track seven is Keep the Fire. This was the second single off of it. It only reached number 36. There's a river in the evening you could see how far it flows Rolling on to an endless sea You'd be well on your way If you could only set sail But dreams can drift away And sails can't fail without Where's your vision if the embers flicker out Don't let it slip from view The horizons are waiting You're ready Comes a moment when it's clear 
whatever you need of me I've made up my mind I'll give you more than you've asked for There are those who can foresee where we will go All the future I don't really want to know Only that should be here with me While the embers still blow We'll be safe till tomorrow And something I wondered about why were there only two singles off of this album? Do you know? I mean, This Is It is huge, wins a Grammy, Keep the Fire is less huge, but there's other so- there are other songs in this album that could have been played on the radio very easily. Do you know why they stopped? I really don't have any idea uh, why that it, it was that, except that possibly not long after, you know, uh, the album kind of had run its course and we toured to promote it and all. Kenny then decided he was going to take a year off to start a family and uh, and told all of us in the band as much that he, he was going to, to just, you know, like uh, we weren't going to work for the next year because he, he really wanted to start a family, which he did. And... Uh, so we all kind of went on, uh, off to to, uh, to find work, actually, with other people. And uh, and right during that period, George Hawkins and I uh, joined a band called Firefall. Yes, uh, of course. Yeah. Love Firefall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mike Clark, the drummer, who was of, of the Birds fame and the Flying Burrito Brothers and that, uh, had left the band, as had Mark Andes. Of uh, the bass player of, of both Spirit, the band Spirit, and uh, JoJo Gun fame. Um, anyway, that was their rhythm section on all those early hits. Uh, but George knew uh, one of the guys in the band real well, Larry Burnett, a great uh, singer-songwriter. And uh, we toured together with, with Firefall, and they liked the way George and I worked together, so they asked us to join. And so we did an album, and... Uh, and then George was asked to go to Africa with uh, Mick Fleetwood, and I was I was left to tour with the band. And it was sort of at that point, Firefall was kind of in a, in a, a death spiral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe it. <laughs> you know, for a lot of reasons, and and uh, but but the, but the album we did actually did have one kind of semi hit called "Staying With Us." Yeah, off the. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I had um Rick Roberts and David Muse on here a couple of years ago telling kind of the Firefall story. Those hits are just unbeatable. I mean, you get you get a I mean, they have great albums too, but you get your Firefall greatest hits and you're set. There's so many fantastic songs on there. Yeah. Oh, I know, man, from You Are the Woman to to Strange Way to Tell Me You Love Me to Yeah. No, I know that Really good band, yeah. Now, I want to ask you, too, Keep the Fire and the last song, Will It Last, are both written by, co-written by Kenny's wife at the time, Eva... Eva Ion. Eva Ion, okay. They, uh, you know, they would... In fact, the one and only time I saw Kenny in concert was about 10 years ago, maybe, 10 or 12, and he told a story uh on stage but i don't remember what song it was leading up to and he was talking about the inspiration behind a lot of his songs and one of them came to him and he realized that it was about it was his true feelings about the end of his marriage 
And whatever song that was became a hit. Maybe it was Forever. Maybe it was something else. I don't remember. Was was Eva maybe, and, and obviously it's not the, this song, I guess, but was Eva around? Was she, um, what was her addition to these songs? You know, what did she bring to the well, table? Well, yeah, I think that, uh, um, I think Eva was involved uh, more lyrically uh, with, with some of Kenny's uh, tunes. So the, the songs where she's credited as, as having co-written, it was, it was more of a lyrical thing. Um, because as far as musically, she was never, well, yeah, she was at a few rehearsals, but it was mostly just to be there to, to be with Kenny, you know? Yeah. I wondered, maybe it was don't fight it, whatever it was, whatever song of his that was famous that he played in this concert, the spark of the idea was him just blurting out his true feelings about the end of his marriage. It was kind of a shocking moment anyway. Oh. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I never heard heard that. Okay. Yeah, Keep the Fire is a great song. It's got fun vocoder on it, and uh, there's some laser synthesized sounds. I like that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned vocoder. I, I've got to tell you a little story inside on that. Kenny, when he initially you know, wrote the song, he wrote it, uh, I don't think, intending to do the modulation, right? So there is a modulation at the end of the song where it goes up a step or two. And and talk about painting yourself into a corner, even with the incredible range that Kenny has. Uh-huh. <laughs> he, <laughs> He's not doing that one again. <laughs> he could not nail that note. So they actually, yeah, it wasn't, uh, there was a vocoder, you know, that they use at the beginning. And we were all influenced by Herbie Hancock's album they you know, walk into the sunlight or that song you know back then so that's that was the inspiration for the vocoder but we actually used the vso you know which is like a variable speed oscillator or whatever uh that used to slow the track down so you could do, you know do whatever you couldn't do at the at full speed right so we did that so we could nail that last note and if you listen closely that last after the modulation, uh, he he does sound a little Mickey Mouse like. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to go back knowing that story. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Uh, okay, the last two songs. These are uh, so track eight. Give it half a chance. This was co-written by Stephen Bishop. In a passing stranger's 
And uh, I was going to mention this because Stephen does this sometimes too. Sometimes he nails a ballad so perfectly and sometimes they just get a little sleepy for me. It feels like there should be more of a payoff to me than there actually is. And I hate to, you, I'm not even telling you this because you have to agree with me or whatever. I'm just voicing my opinion. I, of course, Kenny's falsetto is fantastic on this song, but it uh, it just doesn't go anywhere interesting or impactful enough for me personally emotionally does that yeah. make sense yeah well it does but uh, there's there's so much more uh that to that i love about that song that then i agree with you as far as like like you know the payoff and the yeah. uh you know the emotional like what it bubbles up inside of me it ain't about that uh, I, uh, but for me, the way we crafted that, and particularly, as I was mentioning, George Hawkins, uh, uh, George Hawkins' choice of notes and, and syncopation that we, we came up with uh, on that track, I just love. So as a track, I love the track. Okay. You know, but, but yeah, I, I know what you're talking about as far as the song. And I don't, yeah. I don't dislike it or hate it or anything like that. Comparatively, on this album, it's one of the weaker tracks for me, and I, and that's why I just feel like it doesn't. It, there needs to be like, like in Forever, he hits that dramatic note. You know, there's that boom moment yeah. where it really explodes, and uh, that's yeah. probably a David Foster influence or something. But I just didn't. Some of these songs, they don't go anywhere enough. They just sort of meander to me a little bit. Um, that's yeah. Anyway, will it last? Will 
There is, it's it's sleepy, but you're right. There are so many interesting things going on in this song. There's that acoustic kind of interlude there in the middle before it gets back into kind of an electric guitar. I think Michael McDonald's in there somewhere. He is, yeah, yeah, the out, yeah, uh-huh. Okay. And you can hear, now, now I'll tell you something. It was actually Tom, Tom Dowd's idea to do that whole breakdown where it kind of goes almost like, it sounds like a acoustic guitar and a music box together, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you think of the song Layla, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, totally morphs into that whole other thing at the end. That was actually yeah. Jim Gordon, the, the drummer's piano part uh, that he just sat down and started playing. And Tom went, ah, that would be cool, right? You know, it had the brainstorm. And so that's how Layla... Uh, evolved, you know. We he told us that story, uh, but that's also what happened with with uh, Will It Last. Um, that whole breakdown section. I think Tom had hoped to accomplish the same kind of thing. Okay, yeah. I don't. That song at least kind of goes in some interesting directions, more so than give it half a chance. But yeah, I I agree with you, and I can see why you especially love that because you sound. In fact, there's a long. It's a fairly long song, and there's a good 45 seconds or so where you're not even there and then you kind of start coming in very softly and very tastefully but then it just builds from there that one is much better for me yeah well give it half a chance so i have to say give it half a chance because <laughs> because uh I, I i i i was i meant what i was saying uh with regards to the rhythm section Okay. That holds true for that song as well. Oh, good. Um, I love, I love what George Hawkins uh, did with that, you know, and his, uh, and how we crafted the, the, just the rhythm, the rhythm section. You know, I totally agree as a song. Yeah, there's not a huge payoff on that one. Yeah, a little bit. Did you have was Stephen Bishop around, or did he and Kenny write that somewhere else, and Kenny bring it into you guys? Yeah, that's the way it was. Okay. Um, we had, you know, we, you know, bumped into Stephen Bishop here and there, but, uh, but yeah, no, they got together to write that. It wasn't a it was part of the session or anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all the songs. When you look back, and I'm believe me, I'm going to ask you about this album cover here in just a minute. But before we get there. What, uh -huh. Why is this album so impactful for you? Was it just the experience of creating it? Is there a story that leaps to mind? What's the thing that just makes this such a great memory for you? Man, it's the totality of that. I think that maybe, you know, I had played on uh, a big hit already with, with Kenny uh, with, off, off the Nightwatch album. But... It wasn't a song that I was really emotionally invested in and that I loved 
uh, everything about, you know. Um, so, uh, but with This Is It, that song, that song I am so proud of that to this day, anytime it comes on the radio, I am still equally as proud. And even though I've, you know, <laughs> this part, I mean, there's, there's things I would change now about my drum part. But uh, that being said, it doesn't matter because it's perfect as it is. People love it. And- and I'm content with that, you know. Uh, and the, the song still holds up, and it's one of those that, that you know, you just know that, I hope anyway, in another 20 years, people will, will still remember, you know. So uh, It's so yeah. good. So it's already stood the test of time. It sure has. So. Um, okay, we got to talk about the album cover. Um, it's sure. it's. It's funny. It's unintentionally funny, unfortunately. And uh, I wonder if you had, if you were involved in it. Now, in the back cover is a picture of the band, and there's you on there looking. That one's a little more normal. Uh, but whose idea was this? Like, did he show you? Did he bring it in one day? Like, guys, look, this is a, this is what I'm thinking for the album. And everyone was like, yes, perfect. Look like a magician or Jesus or whatever. What was the thinking there? No, man, I think. You know, I, I had a friend. We were all living in Laguna Beach with the exception of uh, of, of Kenny. But most of the band lived in, in Laguna at that point. And I had a friend who passed away just this past year who is an absolutely amazing human being. Uh, I won't go into his life story, but maybe one of the most creative and colorful people I've ever known in my life was actually a clothes designer who did hand-painted silk. And we were all wearing his clothes and stuff, you know, back then. Uh, his name is Detlef Faroth. And uh, actually, uh, I had introduced Kenny to him. And, and uh, Kenny uh, and he had become friends. And, and he always was just, you know, kind of just one of those people that could just, could just come up with great ideas. And, uh, and also tell stories that wh- whether they were true or not, <laughs> They just, they were so colorful and that they just drew you in, you know? So anyway, and he was so enthusiastic about everything, you know? So I remember hearing something about how, uh, how Detlef had said, I, I must've at some point to Kenny, you know, uh, mentioned how in prehistoric times, how it would keep the fire. There were people that, that, that would pass the fire, uh, you had to keep the fire burning, right? Uh, because to, to, I mean, I guess at that point, it was beyond the uh, man's grasp Got it. to actually could create a fire. So, you know, <laughs> if, if they had fire, they had to keep passing it on. So I think that inspired Kenny, Kenny's, uh, uh, like, you know, that, goofy thing holding the fire out to you, you know, or the glowing orb or whatever it was. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a classic in, uh, you know, in kind of an unfortunate way. It's just funny. It's just just a funny picture now looking back. Last thing before I let you go, I want to say congratulations on making the Funk Music Hall of Fame. How did that happen? Uh Well, thank you, man. Well, uh, sure. Yeah, the great bass player that um, that I uh, 
actually recommended to Kenny after George Hawkins left. Vernon Porter uh, was actually uh, inducted into the, the Funk uh, Music Hall of Fame. He's from Ohio originally and was very influential, apparently, in, in Columbus, where he's from. Um, and uh, so he was actually inducted before me and then, I guess, recommended to uh, the... Um, the, to the Hall of Fame that they induct me because I played on, you know, like hit R&B records as well as, you know, the stuff with Kenny and Michael McDonald's and, and uh, but I, my work with Al Jarreau and Howard Hewitt and Anita Baker and a lot of other people. So, uh, yeah, thanks, man. Sure. Congratulations. You deserve it. Oh, thank you, man. Well, it's great talking to you, John. Thank you, Tris. Yeah, I really enjoyed it again, man. So uh, thank you so much. Okay, man, I love your work. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I love yours. <laughs> bye bye. Okay, bye bye. All right, there you have it. Kenny Loggins, Keep the Fire, 1979. I don't know what people think about Kenny. I don't know if people love him, dislike him, think he's cheesy, think he's awesome. I don't know because he's had he's covered all of those bases in his career. And, uh, but I just, I think he's great. When he's good, he's very, very good. And uh, the 70s and 80s were good to Kenny Loggins. I have to give a huge thanks. Our OG, Aaron Syrett, did this uh, episode for us. There were some technical issues and I wasn't sure we could ever even get this out. But Aaron was able to fix a lot of them and give us what we have here. So thank you, Aaron, the OG, for coming back. Um, all right, guys, we'll be back on Tuesday like we normally are. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.